Bible, Second Corinthians, excuse me, Second Samuel, Second Samuel. Now, uh, I guarantee you that there are some people in this room this morning who could stand and tell some stories of things that they've done that can only be explained by the word love. Over the years, I've heard some of those stories of the crazy, I mean, of the things people have done because of love. I've got a few of my own. Those stories include such things as back in the day, hundreds, even thousands of miles traveled because of love. They include uh, great amounts of money spent (laughs) because of love. They include schedules totally rearranged at the last minute because of love. Sacrifices made all because of love. Now, anybody here this morning got a story Along that line, would you raise your hand if you got a story about love and it's something that it made you do? Anybody at all? I'm not going to ask you to share it. I just want to know if, you, if you've got one, all right? All right, I see some hands there. It would be fun. It would be fun to hear those stories. I guarantee you. I remember hearing my father-in-law talk about when he was in the Marines, driving all the way from Florida up to a little town in Virginia just to try to see his then-to-be Wife, okay, to spend some time with her. And that was a long drive back in those days, okay, from Florida up to Virginia. But just to try to get a day over the weekend, one day, those types of things. It's very, very common for folks to have those types of stories all because of love. Now, you may be surprised at the quote I'm getting ready to show you here to give you, uh, at the content of it. But I think you might also be surprised by who made the statement. Um, and there may be some present today, possibly, who your gut response once you see this quote is going to be to have some pushback. You're going to say, well, I'm not sure about that. Okay. But ponder on it before you pass judgment on it. Okay. You ready for the quote? Here it is. I think we're going to have it on the screen. It says this. If love is always discreet, the word there means careful, cautious. If love is always discreet, Always wise, always sensible and calculating, never carried beyond itself. It is not love at all. It may be affection, it may be warmth of feeling, but it has not the true nature of love in it. Think about that. Ponder on that. That's that's pregnant with meaning. You know who made that statement? Well, Oswald Chambers. That dear man of God who's impacted so many lives. Read over it again with me. If love is always discreet, always wise, always sensible and calculating, never carried beyond itself, it is not love at all. It may be affection, it may be warmth of feeling, but it has not the true nature of love in it. And our stories that all of us could give in this room today, they back that up. They sure do. What was Oswald Chambers saying? I believe he was saying this. Love can make a person do things that appear foolhardy. 
Love can make a person do things that are extravagant. Love can make a person do things that appear to be unwise. The bottom line is this, okay? Love can make a person do things that they ordinarily would not do. Anybody say amen to that? (laughs) I especially like the phrase in that quote, I especially like and I'm challenged by, when Oswald Chambers said, if what we call love never carries us beyond ourselves, it's not true love. That's a powerful thought, powerful statement. And when he added that phrase, if it never carries one beyond himself or herself, Here's what I think he was saying. Here's what I hear Chambers saying. Genuine love is costly. Genuine love is sacrificial. Simple. But I believe that's what he's saying. So here's the, here's the big idea, so to speak. You know, sometimes when you prepare sermons, they teach you to have a big idea. What, what's the main thought you're trying to share? So today, here's the big idea of my message, and that is this. How much is our love for God costing us? In what ways is our love for Him carrying us beyond ourselves in willing and glad sacrifice? Now, if we say we love Him, but these characteristics of costliness and sacrifice are not there, they're missing, then to go back and quote Chambers again, what we have may be affection, and it may be warmth of feeling, but it has not the true nature of love in it, if those things are missing. Now, let me repeat it one more time if I could. Love, genuine love is costly, and genuine love is sacrificial. Now, it's interesting that from the earliest days in the Word of God, from the earliest days in Scripture, costliness and sacrifice have been the standards for acceptable worship of God, and they have been the standards for expressions of love to God. From the earliest days, here here we go, Exodus chapter 34, verse 20. God said this, none shall appear before me empty. See that phrase at the end there? None shall appear before me empty. And then in Leviticus chapter 22, the word of God says this concerning the offerings that were brought. It shall be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no blemish therein, neither from a stranger's hand. Men were required to offer to God what was valuable, not worthless. What was their own and not another's. And here we go. Even the poorest were not exempt from that. So from the earliest days of the word of God, those were the standards of acceptable worship and the standards of acceptable expressions of love to God. Costliness. And sacrifice. By the way, let me ask you real quick. Do we see those same two characteristics presented to us in the New Testament? Can you think of any stories or episodes in the New Testament that illustrate for us that that same standard was present when Jesus was walking here on the earth? Well, yeah. What about that dear widow That Jesus observed as she put in her offering. She's given all that she has. What about when that dear lady that loved the Lord so much came and and broke that that container of ointment. And some that were standing by said, why is this waste being, why is this being done like this? She's wasting this. So from the Old Testament right on through the New Testament, it's consistent. 
Love for God will be demonstrated in cost and sacrifice. You cannot separate the two. Now, my big idea, once again, is this. How much is our love for God costing us? In what ways is our love for Him carrying us beyond ourselves in willing and glad sacrifice? Think about that. There's a very intriguing and compelling story in the Old Testament that we're going to look at in just a moment that illustrates these truths in a very plain and yet powerful, powerful manner. Uh, As a matter of fact, I believe it was back in college where I first saw these, and man, it just challenged my soul. And I have remembered this passage all through the years. Quite an amazing story that we're going to read here in just a few moments, okay? So, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to ask you to read it with me, but in an effort to save time, can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. I tell you, I, you, you folks hurt my feelings all the time. You really do. I mean, just like yesterday, Andy, he said, you're preaching tomorrow. I said, yeah. He said, okay, we'll, we'll bring our lunch with us. And uh, <laughs> No, but in an effort to save time, uh, I'm going to do a running commentary of the passage rather than read the passage and then go back and comment on it. And so I'd like to request that you stop with me along the way and uh, don't get ahead of me, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get so caught up in the story that you, ju- that you jump ahead of me, all right? I-, I got that favor to ask of you. So, you got your Bibles there, 2 Samuel? Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. Now, I'll say right up front, there are some heavy things in this passage that we could spend literally this entire time and another hour at least probably talking about, discussing, and looking at parallel scripture with. We won't do that today. It's a profitable study. So if you see some things that are just kind of questionable and you say, man, I'd like to delve into that a little bit more, then maybe on another occasion that can happen, all right? Or you can do that on your own. So stay with me if you would. Beginning 2 Samuel verse, chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. The passage opens up and it says this. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, let me say right now, for reasons not stated, they're not given to us. The Lord was angry against Israel. We do not know what the offense was. We do not know what the sin was. But the Word of God plainly says that the Lord was angry with Israel. And then it says, And he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. Now, this could be one of those places where you say, Whoa, 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 whoa wait just a second now. God, God moved David to do something like this, okay? And we're going to see in a moment, it wasn't a good thing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, like I said, but it's interesting. Don't turn to it now. But there's a parallel account of this exact same story in 1 Chronicles 21. And the first verse of that chapter says, Satan moved David to number the people. Now, there's no contradiction. Listen very carefully. For the Lord had simply allowed Satan to prompt David to an improper course of action in order that Israel might be punished and that David might be instructed. This is similar to the Lord's permitting Satan to trouble Job and his allowing an evil spirit to torment Saul. Now here's the bottom line. In any case, the Lord himself did not incite David to do evil for, as James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. So I want to make that clear right here, right now. Okay? 
Maybe worth an in-depth study and for you to ponder on and study it another time, like I said there. But let's continue. Ready? Chapter 24, verse 2. For the king, David, said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God, add unto the people how, how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Now, if you remember much of the Old Testament stories, you know that Joab was not a man known for his godliness. <laughs> and yet, he has an insight here, and he asks a very penetrating question of King David. And in asking this question as to why the census was going to be undertaken, Joab obviously implies there's a sinful motive going on here in, on, in David's heart. There's something not right. David, why, why, could I ask you, sir, why, why are you intent on doing this? The Lord bless you, man. The Lord bless our armies and just increase them a hundredfold. And, and I hope you're able to see what God's doing. But why are you wanting to know this number? This, this, cal this calculated total that we're gonna, you're telling us to do. David, why do you feel the need to assess your strength right now? There's another way we could say it. Well, man, I tell you what, guys. I've had this to happen to me one time. I won't go into the story. But you know, sometimes God can use the most unlikely, even unsaved people to grab us and to hit us right between the eyes with something that's not right in our lives. Man, I, I could tell you a story, I wish I had time, of a dear lady in Slovakia who no one in the church cared for her. Here I am telling you the story. She had a, a rough reputation of just being a, a gossip and very critical. And... Uh, Man, she came up to me one time after a service. She made this comment. She said, after a man had preached, she said, now that's God-anointed preaching right there. And man, when she said that, she didn't even know how I had felt the Lord and the conviction that I had in my heart. But God used that dear lady to smack me upside the head and say, Tim, yeah, that's what you need. Is God anointed preaching. So God can use very unlikely sources to bring about growth in our lives and conviction. Here he is using Joab. David, why are you so intent on this? What, what's this all about, man? Now, if you'll read with me in verse 4, here's what happened. Notwithstanding, even though Joab kind of protested, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. Jump down, please, if you would, now to verse 8. Let's pick up there. So when they had gone through all the land, doing the census, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people under the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Now stop right there. Over a million is the count. 
Now, from what we just read, it's very revealing that the census wasn't of the general population. It was of the military. And the fact that he only had military men counted suggests that he was interested in determining his military strength. And herein lay the sin. Herein lay the sin that David committed. He probably did all this so he could boast in human might. Yep. Look at me. Look at how many men I have. Look at how powerful we are as a nation. And we know also from the Old Testament... The times that God very strongly warned His leaders, do not put your trust in horses and chariots. Don't do that. Always make sure your trust is in me. In me. And David very flagrantly, and in spite of someone challenging him, said, no, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyhow. I want to know how strong I am, how strong we are as a nation. Now, I love, I'm so grateful for the next verse. Verse 10. Look at it. And David's heart smote him. After that, he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Hey, I love that phrase. I love that statement. And David's heart smote him. Folks, listen. You know this. But it's a precious time in the life of a child of God when our hearts are smitten by God. I've had seasons in my life where I had gone so long where I just sensed that God was not even able to speak to me. I began to be concerned. I began to be troubled. Lord, are you not able to penetrate my heart anymore? I want to hear your voice. I want you to speak to me. But I went seasons long without that happening. And folks, i got to tell you, it's like the old song, Showers of Blessing. There shall be showers of blessing upon the old parts of ground. And I am so grateful for those times when in a service or through the Word, spending time in the Word or through some challenge by somebody or some circumstances life, I am grateful. I am grateful. Praise His name. For those times where He has smitten my heart. Folks, listen. It's precious when we weep in the presence of our God. It's good. It's a life-changing thing when we're broken before our God. And it's just like a breath of fresh air. And it's like, Lord, I'm so glad you can still speak to me. I'm sorry for what I've done. I regret that. But Lord, I'm just so glad to know you can still convict me. I can still hear your voice. Oh, I love that. David's heart smote him. (laughs) Oh, man. We had a guy up at the man camp a couple years ago. Brought a whole series of messages on the life of David. Why in the world was he called a man after God's own heart when he committed adultery and murder? And lo and behold, here he is, vaunting himself, lifting himself up in pride in the presence of God, saying, I'm a mighty king, we have mighty armies. How could God have called him a man after his own heart? That dear man that spoke at the retreat, I was going to try to find the notes from it. But you know what he landed on finally? He said, said, listen, it wasn't the fact that David was a man who was perfect that made him a man after God's own heart. Here's what it was. It was the fact that David was willing to be broken and confess when he did wrong. And he did that a lot. I'm grateful for that, aren't you? Huh? 
Yeah, sometimes we want to think, well, the only person that ever qualified to be said that they have a heart after God is somebody that just lives a perfect life. They never struggle with sin. They never have failure. That's just not a part of their life. No, no, that's not true. It's rather, I believe, a person, as this dear preacher said there at camp, it's a person who is willing to be broken before God and say, God, I need a fresh touch. Amen. I love Psalm 51, 17. Don't turn to it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, thou will not despise. Do you know when we're the most pleasing to God? It's not when we have all these pens like we used to have years ago that we've been in Sunday school every week for years and years and years. That's not what pleases God. It's not the amount of work we do primarily. No. You know what it is? It's a heart that's contrite in His presence. It's a heart that's humble, that's broken. I love that verse, Psalm 51, 17. Well, the story continues. Look at verse 11. Wow. For when David was up in the morning after he had that meeting with God, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I will offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come upon thee in thy land, or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee, or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let me not fall into the hand of man." Boy, I like that right there too, guys. How about you? <laughs> I mean, David's in a quandary. He, there are going to be some consequences. There are going to be some bad consequences because of his sin. And in a very unique way, God says, okay, you have three choices. I love what David said, though. As a man who has just blown it spiritually. As a man who has just blown it spiritually. He makes this statement. Uh... I'm going to take my chances with God because he's merciful. Oh, praise the Lord for that. I don't want to fall in the hand of man. No, no, no. But I will. This is tough. None of these are pleasant. But I'm going to fall into the hands of a merciful God. Hey, guys, listen. We need to be careful, so careful. We never allow our enemy to make us think that we need to turn and and walk away from it all. Because of some failure in our lives, because of some sin, because of some shortcoming. And he's there all the time, eager, I believe, to make us do that. He wants to tell us those lies that we're not worthy and and, and God's given up on us and there's no point continuing. Those are all lies. Because our God is a God of mercy. He delights in mercy, Micah says. Praise the Lord for that. I'll take my chances with God. Hey, you know these verses. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. <laughs> That's the kind of God I have. How about you? Yeah, you do. If you know Him, if you know His Son as your Savior, He's, he's that kind of God to you too. Now, you may not believe it, and you may not know it, but He is. He is a God of mercy. I love Psalm 103. Listen to these verses. Boy, don't these cause your heart to rejoice? He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. And all God's people said, 
Amen. That's the kind of God we have. Well, the Bible goes on. Read with me, please, if you would. Verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. 70,000 people lost their lives. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Aaron the Jebusite. Now the threshing place, I think probably most of you know, is where they would bring the, the, the wheat in, the grain, and it would be there uh, separated, sometimes by oxen being pulled over it, and the wind would come and carry away the chaff, and the good part would be there for them to use and to, uh, to utilize. But that's, the, that, that's where the angel of the Lord is appearing now, on this threshing floor of the man by the name of Aaron. Verse 17, And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David, the prophet, came back to him and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aaron of the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Continuing, please, verse 20. And Aaron looked. And saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aaron went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. Man, I wish we had time to just kind of imagine. He's probably out there maybe working in his fields. And he looks up and sees a little bit of dust stirring down the road, so to speak. And begins to think, well, I wonder who in the world that is coming out here to my place. And as he gets, ro- and as he gets closer and closer, he begins to realize, man, this is a royal entourage here. This is not just somebody. This is royalty coming. And then he begins to see, this is David the king. And he falls down in his presence and says, Why in the world have you come out here to my place? Verse 22. Why is my Lord the come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Aaron said unto David, Let my Lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Aaron as a king give unto the king. And Aaron said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. Hey, we can stop right there. What an amazing picture of a man who so loves and reveres his king that he says to him, Hey, you can have not only my threshing floor, here are the oxen that you can use, and here are the instruments they pull, and you can use those to build that fire and to offer a sacrifice to your God. You can have it. It's an honor for me to give that to you. We can stop right there. You're talking about love? Was it costly for Aaron to do that? Was it sacrificial for him to do that? Yes, it was. But now here's the heart of my message. You've got to continue on. Verse 24. And the king said unto Aaron, No, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. Wow. We'll stop right there. Aaron, <laughs> man, your generosity, your sacrificial spirit, your love for me, it overwhelms me. But i got to say no to you. Because I'm not going to offer, I'm not going to offer anything unto my God unless it costs me something. Now, let's make some practical applications of what we've learned today from this story, okay? Here's my big idea once again. How much is our love for God costing us? In what ways is our love for Him carrying us 
beyond ourselves in willing and glad sacrifice. And now I add one additional question. Are we offering to God that which cost us nothing? If we are, quote, what we have may be affection. It may be warmth of feeling, but it has not the true nature of love in it. Now, I'm not going to lay out for you in minute detail what a love for God that costs something looks like. I'm not going to do that. I don't want you living up to Tim Coley's expectations or anyone else's. But having said that, I do believe the Word of God gives us some criteria by which we can evaluate our love for God. Now, first of all, let, let's think for just a moment about our financial resources. And boy, some of you know right now you're saying, well, uh-oh, Tim, now you done gone from preaching to meddling now. All right, you're getting into some personal stuff here. <laughs> Here's a simple exercise, okay? In your mind, I want you to take out your monthly budget, okay? Think about your budget right now, okay? Now, here's what I want you to do. Arrange your expenses, your outlays, in the order of their amount from the greatest to the least. All right, can you do that just mentally in your head? What, what, what is it that takes the majority... The most of your money each month. What's that outlay? What's that? What, what's the second thing on your list? The, the second greatest expense you have monthly. Just think our way through that, okay? Now, here's the question. Where does our total giving to the Lord, that's tithes, that's offerings, that's faith promise giving, all of it together. Where does that total amount fall on our list? What, where, what position, what number does it take in the list of things that we give our finances to every month? Now, I'm not going to tell you where it should be on your list. Remember, I said I was not going to lay out in minute detail what a love for God that costs something looks like. But I do want each of us to pause and to ask ourselves this. Does where my giving falls on my list of monthly outlays reflect a love for God that is sacrificial? Does where that total falls on my list that I've created in my mind, does that position that it holds reflect a love that is costly and sacrificial? I hope we're not like the dad whose little junior boy watched very carefully in the service one morning what his daddy placed in the offering plate as it came by. Man, sometimes kids, they just soak up everything, don't they? They grab stuff you're not even thinking about. <laughs> they think so literally sometimes too, right? Yeah, they do. So this little boy was just taking it all in, and he noticed what his daddy gave when the plate came by. Well, on the way home, man, the father was complaining about how long the sermon was. Man, that preacher, he preaches so long. And the mother, man, she's talking, man, that song leader, he talks too much. Why didn't he, why didn't he just stand up, sing up, and shut up? <laughs> I, knew, I knew you were already thinking it. I knew that. 
Man, they were complaining left and right. The little boy sitting in the back seat of the car, he just piped up and said, Well, I, I thought it was a pretty good show for a dollar. Thought it was a pretty good show for a dollar. So here's the point. Do what, does what I give to the Lord reflect cost and sacrifice on my part? Words of that on that list. Well, here's another exercise that can help us, I believe, in determining if our love carries us beyond ourselves, our love for God. What about our time? Is our love for God reflecting a costly sacrifice in that area? Now, listen very carefully, okay? If you would, please. It is true that for the child of God, all of life, all of our time, can and should be considered as being lived for God's glory. That's true. But when it comes to seeking His kingdom plan for us individually, which is to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and when it comes to fulfilling the kingdom mission He's given to each of us of getting the gospel to the unsaved and then discipling them, how much time are we giving God? Is our love for God costly when it comes to our time? Is it sacrificial? Are we sacrificially giving our time to God? If those are not characteristics of our financial resources and of our time, what we have may be affection and it may be warmth of feeling, but it's not the true nature of love. Because love always is characterized by costly sacrifice. It's all through the Word. It's lived out in life, in our lives. We could give stories of that very thing. Yes, we could. I dare say that most, if not all of us, when we were first saved, we loved God without reservation. <laughs> Can you remember when you first trusted the Lord and the, the, the zeal and the, the fervor that was in your heart and just the gratitude? And man, that drove you, didn't it? It drove, it compelled you to live in a very sacrificial way. We had an uninhibited delight and a joy to give to God sacrificially of our finances and of our time. It was really what we call that first love, wasn't it? Yeah, it was that first love. And just as Christ said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2-4, and you're familiar with this, I believe many of us, many of us might have to hear the Lord say to us, I have somewhat against thee. Oh, you're doing a lot of good things, but I have somewhat against thee. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. And you know, maybe today as a child of God in this service, you realize in a fresh way this morning that yes, you have left your first love. Things have become perfunctory in your Christian journey. There's very little sacrifice. Maybe God's speaking to you now saying, you're not really giving me a love that costs anything. How can you get it back? How can we get it back? How can I get it back when I lose it? Well, Christ told the church in Ephesus, didn't he? In chapter 2, verse 5, three key words. Here they are. Brother and sister Christ, if you're hungry today for God's touch, you want to be experiencing his blessing in a greater way, here's the three things to get that first love back. Remember, repent, and repeat. 
Three key words. Now listen to me just for a moment. That word remember in the Greek, the verb tense is this. Keep on remembering. Let it be a habit of your life that you are reflective on what you've lost and let it be something that cultivates a desire to regain. Now listen very carefully, please. Listen very carefully. It cultivates a desire to regain that close communion with the Lord once again. Number two, repent. It means a change of mind and a confession of sin to the Lord. Lord, I've been offering you all kinds of things that cost me nothing. And guess what? We just read a few moments ago, didn't we? That's exactly what David did. We could say he left his first love when he numbered all the people, the armies. Pride became first in his life. How did he get it back? Oh Lord, I have sinned. I want you to forgive me. Repentance is a change of mind. And that's exactly what happened to David. Hey, you know what? We could walk out of this auditorium today. I'm saying we. We could walk out of this auditorium totally different people than what we were when we walked in. How? By doing business with our God. By repenting. By confessing and having a change of mind. Lord, I've been living for the wrong things. I've been giving you the leftovers. My love has not been evidenced by sacrifice and cost. And then the third word is this. Repeat. Jesus told the church, do those first works. Now, Warren Wiersbe says this about that statement. He says it suggests, listen very carefully, restoring the original fellowship that was broken by our sin and neglect. And though not in these exact words, listen very carefully, though, though Warren Risby did not use these exact words, I could show you in his commentary where here's really what he said. He said the way to restore that original fellowship is done by, have you ever heard this? Having a meaningful time alone with the Lord. Hey guys, guess what that does? That brings everything right back down to the bottom line. My relationship with Christ. My walk with the Savior. My walk with God. That's repeating the first works. It's that companionship and desiring to have that fellowship of knowing God's with me and that He's, he's speaking to me and He can work in my life like we did when we first got saved. Now, I hope you'll park here just for a second with me now and listen to this next, statement, this next statement. I want to share a reality with you that we need to realize. And maybe we already do, but it's good for us to think about it. Okay, here it is. We, brothers and sisters in Christ, okay, we do not have within ourselves the wherewithal to love God, much less to love Him in a costly manner. It's not in us, in and of ourselves. Such love has to come from a supernatural source. Love that is willing to sacrifice. Love that is willing to pay any cost. That's a supernatural kind of love. But here's the good news. As we walk with the Lord, nurturing that relationship with Him, a costly and sacrificial love for Him will flow through us. It's inevitable. You can't have a meaningful time alone with the Lord and it not move you in the direction of being more sacrificial and more and being willing to give something that's more costly. You just can't avoid it. But, but we don't have that within ourselves. That can only come from the Lord. And the way we get that from the Lord is by walking with Him. 
By spending time with Him. Listen, we can be good church members. And we can do the church thing, so to speak, all of our lives. But listen, I believe in the heart of every true child of God here today, there's a hunger for reality. I don't want to just do church. How about you? I don't want to just go through the motions. I don't want to be just a good assistant pastor. I don't want to be just a good Christian. I want the blessing of God on my life. I want to see God work in me and through me to make a difference in this world for His glory. That will come. That kind of a life of sacrifice and of living for the others, that's only going to come from a supernatural source and it comes from spending time with Him. I'm going to quote Oswald Chambers one more time. I have shared this so many times over the years in so many different settings because it so speaks to me. If you're a person that kind of has an inclination to always be busy and wanting to do something, you're task-driven, then you'll know why this means so much to me, why this so challenges me, and why I've carried it with me for so many years since I first read it by Oswald Chambers. Here's what he said. The main thing about Christianity is not the work we do, but the relationship we maintain and the atmosphere produced by that relationship. Oh, praise the Lord. Did you hear that? And that atmosphere will always be evidenced by a costly love for God. Here's another way of putting it. Any man or woman who makes it a priority to walk with God, to maintain that relationship above all else, will have the testimony of being a man or woman whose love for God is costly. (laughs) Did you hear that? Anyone that has that kind of an atmosphere in their life because of their time with God, their love for God, their spending time with Him, Him speaking to them, him working in their hearts through His Word, by His Spirit. It's inevitable that that man or woman is going to be, it's going to be evidence in their life. A costly love. A giving love. A sacrificial love. Now, I'm going to close with a, one more quote. And it's an old-fashioned way of saying things, but I really like it. This last quote sums up what David's heart was all about when he made this statement. When David said, Neither will I offer to the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. You see, folks, I I could preach today and really bear down on you giving more. And that would be appropriate. The Word of God, Paul taught that. There would be nothing wrong with that. Of your money. I I could bear down this morning and really preach and exhort you to give more of your time to God. That's appropriate too. Yeah, we find that in the New Testament. Being exhorted to live, redeeming the time because the days are real. We just heard Pastor talk about that. So that's there. But you know what, guys? It's a whole lot better. Maybe I could say this way or maybe hand in hand with all those exhortations. And that is this. If we hit the root, those things will come. If I develop my walk with Christ, it's going to be there. That love that sacrifices, that love that's costly, it's going to be there. So here's this quote, this kind of old school. Read it carefully and slowly with me. It is the end and essence of all, and I added the word true, of all true religion. Now think very carefully. To turn the mind from self to God. 
Now, folks, that's the bottom line. If we're not giving sacrificially to God, you know what the issue is? Self. We've chosen to live for self. But he says, it it is the end and essence of all religion to turn the mind from self to God. To give the mind absorbing views of the divine beauty and glory. To fill it with with divine love and zeal. To make the mind feel, oh I love this, that nothing is good enough or great enough for him. And when the mind is thus affected and thus possessed, it will understand and share the spirit of David's resolve when he said... I'm not going to give anything to my God if it doesn't cost me something. Man, that's a powerful, that's a powerful statement. Filling the mind with the divine glory, with his amazing love, his grace, his mercy, compels us. It compels us to offer a love that's costly, that's sacrificial. Let me give you these questions. Number one, when we stand before the Lord... Are we going to be glad that we gave to him of our financial resources in a costly manner? Oh, yeah, we will. When we stand before the Lord, are we going to be glad that we gave to him of our time in a costly manner? You're not a kid, and we will. Or will we be ashamed because we consistently gave to God that which cost us nothing? Let's pray. Lord, uh, wow, that's such a heavy, heavy thought, truth.